Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Where have I found grace in every day and, and in various stages of my life? Where have I found joy? It's never been through the pursuit of my own individual freedom, through the pursuit of sexual conquest, or through money. And so I said, well, where do I find it? Well, I find it in those moments where I can accompany somebody. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Before we start today, I think it's time to do another Ask Me Anything episode. So send in your questions. Uh, this will only be open for questions for a week or two, so we don't get too overwhelmed, to EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, just send your questions in text to EzraKleinShow at Vox.com, um, and we will take a look at them, and I will try and answer them on our upcoming AMA. So I first met Cyrus Habib at a conference a few years ago, and you don't forget meeting him. He, he was in the corner, and I knew who he was by reputation. He's lieutenant governor of Washington state. He was the youngest Democrat elected statewide in the country at that point. He's a Rhodes Scholar. He's Iranian-American, and he's blind. And I chatted with him late one night at that conference. And to be honest, we, we didn't connect. Um, I was excited to talk to him, but it, it just wasn't there. He actually told me later after this conversation that he had been sick when we talked. He, he was fighting a fever. But either way, I, I kept an eye on what was happening with him. And then a couple of weeks ago, I read a piece in the New York Times that I didn't expect at all. Habib, who had a very has a very clear shot to be the next governor of Washington state, and who knows what beyond that, He's leaving politics. He's not running for re-election to become a Jesuit. He's going to take a vow of obedience, of poverty, of chastity. He's going to give up his phone for years. This is not something you read every day. And it didn't seem that this was being driven by scandal or by escape. He wasn't running from something as much as he seems to be running towards something. Or, or maybe it's both, right? He, he says in that piece that he could see what politics was doing to him. And he compared getting out now to giving your car keys to someone before you start drinking. And he said something else that has been ringing in my head. He said, I don't see it as a shrinking of my world. 
I see it as a shrinking of myself. So I asked Habib if he would come on the podcast and talk to me about this decision. And I asked him that knowing there is a tension between what he's doing in making this decision and talking about it publicly. But but he said he would. And I'm grateful he did because it's such a remarkable conversation. It's one I'll be thinking about for a long time. But I'll frame it here with a question. Is this story he's telling, is this an inspirational story or a tragic one? Is politics losing the exact kind of person it needs, one who doesn't really want power but who wants to serve because of what politics has become, because it is no longer friendly to people like that? Or is Habib making a hard, clear decision that might inspire others, all of us who can, to ask what really brings us joy as opposed to what society says will bring us joy? Or is this both? Is this an inspiration and it's a tragedy? That's, I guess, for you to decide. My email is always as show at vox.com. Here is Lieutenant Governor Cyrus Habib. Cyrus Habib, welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you, Ezra. So politicians become, they become very practiced, I would say, at telling their life story. And I've heard yours boiled down to from, from Braille to Yale. So I'd like you to tell me your life story as you used to tell it publicly in interviews like this one, say, a year or two ago. Sure. Well, I, I always start with my parents. Uh, they came to this country from Iran. My dad came in 1970 when he was 17 years old. He came to the U.S. to study uh, engineering, and he did his undergraduate and graduate degrees at the University of Washington. Then he went back and worked for an American firm. Uh, this is during the Shah's time, obviously, worked for an American firm in Tehran and started dating his sister's best friend. And that's my mom. And so um, she was a couple years younger. She was in college. Uh, he was the cool American educated guy, a couple years older, who came back. They um, uh, started dating. They got engaged. Then the revolution broke out. My dad had a green card from the company he was working for. So he went back to the U.S., and um, petitioned for my mom to come over. She then, uh, my, my grandfather, who was a really big believer in uh, women's education, said to my mom, you can leave, but not until you finish your college degree. So she finished her college degree in the context of the Iranian revolution and then left, spent a year in Paris waiting because this was during the hostage crisis. So it was quite difficult to get permission to come in. And so she actually lived in a convent with nuns who had rooms available for young women. So she stayed there for a year and came to the U.S. A year later, I was born in uh, the Baltimore area and shortly after that diagnosed with a rare childhood eye cancer that uh, at first took the eyesight in my left eye and then came back a few years later and would go on to take my the eyesight in my right eye when I was eight years old. And when I say that, I often joke that because that was in 1989, that's when I was eight years old, all eight years that I could see took place within the 1980s. So all my visual memories to this day, still from the 1980s. So everyone still looks like Cindy Lauper and Boy George. That's a, that's a good joke, but it has to be really tough. In some ways, it sounds a lot harder to have a cancer come and take your second eye a couple of years later. Well, you know, there's there's no great time to have something like that happen. But I think, and maybe I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a little glass half full on, on these kinds of things, but I kind of feel like it was the ideal time that if it had to happen, it, it would happen then because I was old enough that even if 
those memories are marred by, you know, really crazy hair and dubious fashion. At least, you know, I have that archive of memories from, um, you know, that by the time you're eight, you kind of see enough. And my parents did everything they could. I now recognize looking back on it to try to expose me to visual concepts and pictures and images so that I had, you know, enough time to do that. But I was young enough where I was still learning. And it's, you know, the mind is, is, is still quite elastic. And so, you know, as, as sometimes I'll say, I learned Braille when other people learned cursive, uh, and other kids. And so I was learning all those things, like how to use a cane, how to read Braille, you know, in a couple of years later, I would start to learn how to use adaptive software, text-to-speech software, and so on. And I just think that's really hard later. I've gotten to know people who became blind later in life, uh, for example, you know, in the Iraq War or, you know, through other contexts. And it's really tough for folks when they're in their 20s, 30s, or particularly those who lose their eyesight to a degenerative condition later in life to be able to learn Braille or just learn the kind of tricks of navigating that you need to learn. Um, and so, so I, I feel like, you know, if it had to happen, that actually was uh, probably the best time. By the way, I tell that joke pretty often about Cindy Lauper and Boy George. And, and the reason I tell it is that usually when I tell people that I've had, you know, I had cancer twice as a kid and became blind, you know, the audience, you know, feels this kind of sorrow and, and, and pity and, and all these things. And I, I kind of want to give them permission to understand that like, I'm okay. You know what I mean? Like I'm able to laugh at it and view it with some perspective, but I'll tell you something funny, which is that I was giving the commencement speech at central Washington university a couple of years ago. And, you know, I did the same thing. And I, I said, told the same joke about Cindy Lauper, boy George. And, you know, they knew the part about the eighties was funny. Like they laughed at that part. <laughs> these, 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 you know, 22, 23 year olds, you know, in 2018, when I said, you know, Cindy Lauper and boy George, it was like, I could definitely hear where the parents were seated, right? Like it was, they had no clue who they were. So that, that may have a limited shelf life. Um, we moved from Maryland to Seattle where my dad had gone to, um, to college and grad school. And as I mentioned, I learned all those different techniques, the adaptive software and technologies, all those kinds of things. And, was uh, able to do well in school and went on to, uh, to go to college in New York. So I went to Columbia, um, you know, and, and I'd done a little bit of political activism in high school. I had a, a very good friend who was active in the, what we now call like gun safety movement and some, some stuff around, uh, anti-nuclear, nuclear proliferation. And so I got kind of involved with some of that stuff in high school, but it was really in college when I learned it was two things. One is I got an internship with Senator Cantwell. It was her first year in the Senate. And so I, um, I interned there summer of 01. And you might recall that it was, this was the summer when, uh, Senator Jeffords, uh, switched the party he was caucusing with. So it was an exciting time because Democrats were taking the majority. Uh, but it was the summer right before 9-11. So feels like the calm before the storm. It was Jim Jeffords and Chandra Levy were the big Capitol Hill stories that summer. And I just fell in love with politics. I fell in love with the experience of being there, um, you know, in the room where it happens. I went on to work uh, first intern and then work briefly in Hillary's office in New York, 
where my first day of work was September 14th, 2001. And so what was going to be a pretty run-of-the-mill internship became a frenzied and frantic job helping dislocated individuals and businesses from lower Manhattan. And that really showed me how important government can be in the life of an individual or a community at times of crisis, like what we're going through right now. Uh, but to be there um, at that time and to be in Hillary's office was was really powerful. The other thing that got me interested in politics in college was 9-11 and its aftermath. And I was already majoring in English. I kept that major and I added a major in Middle Eastern studies because I, I really, I felt for the first time like an Iranian American. I, I actually understood myself to be an Iranian American. Um, you know, you, you, in your book, you talk a lot about the kinds of things that can activate identity. And I really, that was a pretty dormant identity for me up to that point. And all of a sudden I felt like it was, uh, you know, living in New York in the aftermath 9-11. I all of a sudden got really interested in issues of, you know, uh, ranging from civil liberties and the Patriot Act to Israel-Palestine to the Iraq War. And uh, so I, I majored in military studies. I got really passionate about critical theory and um, got the the privilege of studying with some extraordinary thinkers, two of whom have, have you know passed away very shortly after. So I studied with Edward Said, Jacques Derrida, and Gayatri Spivak. Can you say a word real quick about what critical theory is? Because for a lot of people, if they've heard about it and if they've heard of Derrida, like it's mostly dismissive now. Well, I would say, you know, so there's a few terms that people kind of use in an interconnected way. Critical theory, I would say, is the broad category under which, you know, literary criticism, art criticism, music theory and criticism might all fall. You know, there's, but, but so critical theory is the study of our methods of approaching texts and texts writ large. So text meaning it could be a literary, you know, a literary text, but it could also be, you know, how we understand even like a political movement. Um, and so the, so critical theory is about saying, well, how does this look if we examine it through a Marxian subtle difference from Marxist, a Marxian or a feminist or a racial uh, or gender or queer perspective? Or, or psychoanalytic. So it's examining those very methods and using them often in combination or in tension with one another to try to tease out meaning from a text and across multiple texts. And, and so a, a key component or, or a sibling of critical theory is comparative studies. And so I was really studying with critical theorists in the context of studying comparative literature. The other thing I should say about critical theory is it's very rooted in continental philosophy and the, the kind of the traditions that went from, you know, Kant, Hegel, uh, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, Heidegger, you know, to Foucault, Derrida, and so on. Whereas the Anglo-American philosophical tradition really took a turn in certain fields still uh, will engage with the, the 18th and 19th century continental thinkers, but in the 20th century moved more towards a kind of as applied philosophy as opposed to the more theoretical work. So I went on, I, I won a Rhodes Scholarship, went to Oxford, and in Oxford at that time, and perhaps still, was not uh, a real uh, stronghold of continental philosophy and critical theory. So I 
was kind of academically disappointed, though it was an amazing time in my life to be at Oxford. And, you know, that was the time when, because I didn't feel that academically stimulated, I had a lot of free time on my hands. So I got to do a lot of traveling, but it's also the time when I really connected more deeply with my faith. And perhaps we'll come back to this, but I'll just circle back a little bit to say, you know, I was raised in a family that was, the best I can describe it is kind of generically monotheistic, respectful of, of all religions, kind of seeing, finding truth in the, in the, you know, in the Abrahamic tradition. My father was from a Muslim family and my mother as well, but my mother had gone to all Catholic schools. And uh, as I said, lived with nuns for a year. So I was kind of exposed to all of it. But growing up in Maryland, where at least at that time, it was still a, a very Catholic state, very Catholic community. All of our friends were Catholics. And so um, when I was fighting cancer as a kid, my dad also had cancer as a kid. Uh, not as a kid, when, when I was a kid. So we had a lot of medical challenges in the 80s. And even though we weren't practicing Catholics, we turned to the to the Catholic Church for prayer and and would go to mass and would go to the shrine of Mother Seton, an American saint who, who has a shrine in Maryland. And so we we kind of participated in Catholicism, even though we weren't part of the church. But then as I grew older, you know, I continued to if you'd ask me in high school, I'd say, you know, yes, I believe in God. If you asked me in college, as I was exposed to thinkers, especially on the more post-structuralist side of things, post-modern side of things, I think I'd probably have said no, or I don't, I probably would have said I don't know, but probably not. And so then it was at Oxford that by Providence, a very good friend who was in my Rhodes class invited me to go to mass with him one Sunday. And, you know, he pitched it to me as, it's a beautiful liturgy and, you know, you'll, you'll just love the, the atmosphere of it. And we went there and it was, uh, it was Dominican college at Oxford called Blackfriars. And so they have, you know, Gregorian chant and, and they're all friars and, you know, in their, in their, in their habits and they're doing that. And, and I just was fascinated and I had not been to any kind of religious service since I was a kid. And I was totally mesmerized by the sheer beauty of it. And so I kept going back with him and I was not a, a believer at that time, but there was an amazing and, and, um, he's still, uh, you know, he comes to Seattle sometimes. He's a, he's a writer and an intellectual, uh, Father Timothy Radcliffe, uh, who used to be the master of the Dominican order globally. He was the priest who, who, you know, who he was the homilist. So he was the one who would give the sermon at, at mass at Blackfriars. And he's a deeply kind of intellectual, open-minded person. And so as I would hear his homilies, my assumptions about religion and my kind of elitist view that, you know, I'm studying with all these smart people and I'm, you know, I'm kind of, kind of this, this very parochial view of religion started to, to really be challenged. And at the same time, the liturgy, the beauty of it allowed me, I think, to become open to hearing ideas and a kind of homecoming that I then realized I'd really been missing. 
And um, so, so we might circle back to that, but I just to to continue. Well, well, let, well, let me hold let me hold on it for a minute because so this is when you, as I understand um, what you said in other places, you convert to Catholicism in this period. Yes. Did you convert because you felt it was beautiful or because you felt it was true? By the time I converted, I believed it was true. Your listeners, some of them uh, may pick up on the the Aristotelian idea that you're pointing to here. Of, definitely. I was definitely consciously pointing to an Aristotelian idea. Well, be, because beauty, goodness, and truth, and Aquinas picks up on this, the, those are the kind of defining virtues of our faith. And they may come in different, you know, in, in a different order for, for each person. But for me, yes, the beauty opened me to it. The goodness is something that I felt in myself getting to be a better person, a better version of myself. And the truth came as I realized that the deepest, most fundamental question had not been answered for me, which was why. That all of the work that I'd done, all the, the academics and um, as smart as I thought I was, if someone just asked me the question of why, I would have absolutely no answer. And I came to believe that finding the answer to why was extraordinarily important because if you don't, you know, like with anything, you know, if you don't understand the why of it, then how are you going to be able to comport your life in a fashion that will harmonize with whatever that answer is? You need to, you need to know what that answer is. And it wasn't to me, it wasn't and has, has not been since satisfying to say, well, it's unknowable or there is no why. So as I, as I was open to that, then I started to read and I read the gospels many, many times. I started to read the 2000 year long great tradition of the church and scholars. I came to realize that the kinds of debates that had been going on between, you know, Levinas and Benjamin and Foucault were as nothing compared to the types of debates that have gone on over 2,000 years about the nature of the universe, how it's ordered, moral questions, aesthetic questions, and so on. And so, so I, it was the, the intellectual attractiveness had its own aesthetic dimension, which was attractive to me. And as I went to mass, you know, not taking communion, not being welcomed yet into the church, not having converted. But as I went, the first thing, the first step was that I went. The second step was that I started wanting to believe, you know, that I started to kind of want to understand. And then gradually it, it began to happen. It began to happen because I started to feel. And I think that this is something that no matter what anyone tells you, in, in my opinion, anyone who says you can reason your way to this is not giving the complete picture. It's, it's the reason why, like, I love C.S. Lewis, you know, and, and I think like that kind of apologetics is fantastic and his use of metaphor and analogy and all that is great. But at the end of the day, you can read C.S. Lewis and be like, yeah, all this makes so much sense the way you're describing it and breaking it down in logic. But I, I just don't believe that there is a trinity. I don't believe that Jesus did these things. I don't believe that Jesus can do these things today. I don't believe that these saints 
perform these miracles when prayed to or whatever. So, so there has to be that, that, that faith and reason do have to go together. But for me, the questions that one could reason through kind of had to be put, I had to respect the intellectual tradition. And then I could start to see the fruits of my kind of participation and my proximity to the church in how I was behaving. And then I started to say, wow, I can feel God's presence. Now I can feel God's presence because I know that I'm happier. I know that I'm better to others. I know that I'm more compassionate. I'll give you an example. I mean, I'm ashamed to say I was the kind of person in college that, you know, when I went to Columbia, they taught us. This is September of 99. They taught us you know, when you walk by a homeless person, they're going to try to engage you in some conversation. The best thing to do is just don't make eye contact and just walk by them. And because if you notice them, if then they'll always want to talk to you. And I did that. I mean, I, uh, of course, I didn't make eye contact, but I also just would, you know, ignore and, and kind of move past and, and really dehumanize the homeless in that way of not even wanting to encounter them. After some time going to mass after some time reading the gospels and really contemplating it, which became praying in time, I found a desire actually, you know, I actually felt that it would be, I felt uncomfortable not engaging with a person who was homeless. And so I started to feel that conversion. And so it went from beauty to goodness and, and to truth. And the truth was an amalgamation of both the intellectual engagement and that faith that kind of came with it. One of the experiences I had preparing for for this interview, you know this, but but the audience doesn't. I asked you what books had you been reading, like what had you been thinking about that that began to lead to the the decision you made here, and you pointed me toward the Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything, and among other things, to Father Greg Boyle's Tattoos on the Heart, and I had been recommended Boyle's book before, and I'd never read it. And for those who don't know, he's a he's a Jesuit um, priest. He's ministered for a very long time in Los Angeles, and particularly um, in a very gang heavy part of Los Angeles. And he's written he's built a huge uh, organization called Homeboy Industries, which works with uh, more than ten thousand former gang members a year. But he's written these books about what it is like to minister in that space, to have buried hundreds of young men and women who've died from gang violence. One of the things about that book is for me, asking the question why, that is fundamentally the obstacle to any kind of faith. And the particular place that it manifests for me is I have a very negative reaction to anybody who will see God in moments of grace and goodness and beauty, but not see her in moments of suffering, of cruelty, right? It, it, it always seems to me in this logical way that if God gets the credit for one, needs to also get the blame for the other. And it's not so much that I don't believe that, but the thing that I kept thinking about reading Boyle's book, which had a big effect on me, is here's this guy. He is sitting in a level of suffering every day that I can't imagine, refusing to close his eyes to pain that I walk by constantly on the street and refuse to get anywhere near. And he has defined God really as grace. Um, he sees God in the moments of grace, in the moments of fellowship, in the moments of rising above. And that's where that faith is getting him. And this is not an argument for theism. I'm, 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 I'm at this moment not. But um, but where is all my logic getting me? 
right? To 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 look at it from this this question of what is what is being produced by it, that the the at least the ability or the willingness to believe in a kind of uh, a god of grace. There is something it permits in people that simply what I've often done and, and and still have a tendency to do, logically arguing that out of existence or at least out of internal consistency, makes for a good argument, but not doesn't do that much for your life. Yeah, I think you know that's where there's two ways to answer it. So there's a kind of there's an intellectual way to answer it, and I think you know the problem of evil is one of the core disciplines within theology, Christian theology, but other traditions as well. But I guess what I would say is that intellectually, how I view it is that in the Gospels, according to Luke, where you find the the story of the prodigal son, and in that same chapter, you also find these, these, these shorter parables. And you know, what, what Jesus is teaching there, what he's saying is, um, and he comes out and says, you know, there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sheep who's been lost and is found uh, than in 99 who were who, who were always safe. And, you know, then the story of the prodigal son is, you know, his younger brother goes out, wastes all his father's inheritance, comes back asking for forgiveness, and the father welcomes him in this abundant, overwhelming way, making the older brother who never left pretty jealous and the, and the older and then the father says to the older to the elder son you know you you've always been here but but we have to celebrate you know slaughter the fatted calf for your younger brother who was lost and has been found and so there's i think built into how our own sense of memory and time works is narrative in other words it's not static there's movement and once you accept that we're living in history, we're living in time, we're not living in what you might call heaven or you might call paradise, you might call just timelessness. Once you accept that we're living in narrative, then what does there need to be for narrative? Well, narrative means that there will be tension, there will be pain, there will be redemption. All of these are features of time and history. And so if you are and this is a big assumption, but if one were to say, well, there is a creator and what would a creation kind of look like? Well, a creation is, is in this sense, a history. Creation is all of history. Creation is, is all of reality. Therefore, there will be, in order for there to be grace in that world, there needs to be some state that is short of grace. There needs to be some suffering from which one is delivered. There would be no doctors if there were no illness. Right, there'd be no lawyers if there were no adversity. Um, there would be no journalists if we all already knew everything. Although we would still need analysis, still still need a lot of explanatory work. Yeah, that's right. It's a lot of uh, yeah for um, for the brainier consumers. So that's the the kind of the intellectual feeling is that I know what it's like to regain something that's lost. I know what it's like for me to overcome an obstacle, even in my own life. And so I look back and say, you know, my blindness, is it a cruel God that allowed for me to be blind? Or is it a God whose understanding is so much greater than mine, that that this thing that was painful to me may have been an invitation to something greater, to something bigger for me or for other people. And so I've seen that play out in my own life. 
when I've faced tragedy, when I've faced loss, I will not make the argument that God is not responsible. In my faith, there, you know, I can only speak to my own uh, tradition in the sense there is a belief that, th- that there's an evil spirit that can tempt and, and manipulate us into doing things that are bad to ourselves and to others. But it's not that God doesn't have the power. It's not that the creator can't enter into history, but that just as an artist draws a canvas or a composer a symphony, and that there will be minor notes and there will even be, you know, dissonance, but that there is a larger compositional plan that is at work. And so, so that's really kind of how I see it, both as a matter of intellect, but it's also the faith that I have. You know, it's, it's baked into the faith in a tradition that says there will be Good Friday. And then after Good Friday, there will be Easter. It's baked into how I view nature as itself creation, which dies off and then is reborn every single year. And that happens all the way down, uh, to the, you know, to even to the atomic level. So, so that's, that's kind of how I see that. And it doesn't mean, I also don't want to suggest that it means that when we experience pain or suffering, um, or loss that we, that we can simply and glibly say, Oh, well, it'll all be okay in the end or everything happens for a reason or, or these kinds of facile statements. Um, you know, cancer is an evil. To become blind is a, is a terrible thing to happen. Um, you know, I'm not someone who subscribes to the idea that, you know, uh, to say blindness is bad is to reject one's identity. Um, I think it, it, it is a terrible thing, but it is also, I believe, an invitation. And in every invitation, there is infinite possibility available to each of us to travel, to accept that invitation and to find a higher ground of grace. I'm going to say this here and then put a pin to come back to it. One of the things I think in there and very much in in some of the Jesuit literature you sent to me or sent me towards is the idea that there is a practice here of noticing, uh, a practice here of noticing beauty, of noticing grace, of being able to stop when you see those things. And and there's a very, I mean, there's something very powerful about that, being able to, 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 to see that side. But because I as you said, want to recognize that we live in a world of time and narrative. I do realize I've put us on a very slow time frame and narrative to get to some of the, the, the things I want to talk about. So to maybe fast forward us just a, a, a little bit, you eventually move into politics. You've, you, you, you run for and become lieutenant governor. You're in Washington State where Jay Inslee is in a lot of parlor games expected to become uh, the EPA secretary, if Joe Biden um, wins the presidency. And so you have a good shot of becoming governor, and you announce that you are not going to run for re-election, and you're going to enter the Jesuit order. And you write in the op-ed making this announcement, quote, I have come to believe that the best way to deepen my commitment to social justice is to reduce the complexity in my own life and dedicate it to serving others. Let me start here. What do you mean when you use the word complexity? Yeah, so um, my mom is one of the only people who knew that this was what I was intending to do. I really made the decision to apply about a year and a half ago now, and I was accepted into the order uh, about a year ago. And my mom was one of the only people that knew, and 
she's supportive of me, but she had a lot of questions. It was not something that she saw coming. And she would ask me the question, okay, you've got all these strong feelings about politics and what politics is doing to you, you know, many of which Frank Bruni wrote about, you know, in the New York Times. And, and, uh, and she said, you know, I, I hear all that, but there's a lot of other things that you can do with your life that would take you away from that toxicity, but that don't involve taking a vow of poverty, a vow of chastity, and a vow of obedience. And those three are so countercultural, right? Because how do we conceive of success? Through wealth, through, in our earlier days, you know, kind of attractiveness and, and, and sexual conquest, the more mature version of that is to say you're kind of leaving behind your legacy through your children and so on. And so, uh, you know, chastity is countercultural, poverty is countercultural, and then obedience, you know, in our liberal, classic liberal society, freedom of the individual is paramount. And so it's so countercultural to what success is. And that coming, you know, from a person who has lived, you know, most of my life seeking those, um, kind of trophies and, and, and the kind of recognition that is as broadly cultural as you can get, you know, becoming a lawyer, getting, you know, going to prestigious schools, uh, getting a great job that paid a lot, leaving that job to go into politics and having people say, you know, you're, you know, how admirable and so on and so forth. So, so she kind of challenged me in that way. And it was important that she did because and this is not a cr- criticism of, of Frank's column because, it, you know, he wanted to write about a very specific thing. But if you read Frank's column on its own, I think except for, for like a line or two, you would think basically I'm, you know, becoming celibate and doing and giving up all my possessions and everything because I thought politics was, uh, was too toxic. And that's not the whole story. You have to, you know, I was pulled towards something, not pushed out of something. And my mom challenging me in that way actually forced me to confront what is it about the church? What is it about entering into the the religious life that is calling me? Because if it's just, I don't like what I'm doing now, then how do I know I'm not making the same mistake that I made when I said, I don't want to be a state senator anymore. I want to be lieutenant governor. You know, I mean, how do I know I'm not just doing, you know, I'm not just restless and, um, you know, commitment phobic. And so that then took a lot of noticing and discernment and, and kind of noticing where have I found grace in every day and, and in various stages of my life, where have I found joy? And as I did that, I realized that it's never been through the pursuit of, my own individual freedom. It's never been through the pursuit of sexual conquest. Um, and, you know, I, 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 you know, the religious life is not for everybody. And I happen to be someone who does not feel a strong desire to, uh, to have children or to get married. So there's not been, you know, I've not found joy down that path or through money. And so I said, well, where do I find it? Well, I find it in those moments where I can accompany somebody. I happened to reconnect with a guy who I'd gone to fifth grade with and I had not seen in over 20 years, uh, about 20 years, reconnected with him just by chance last fall, three days before he died. And, and even though we hadn't seen each other for 20 years, I spent the last couple of days visiting him in his hospital room and being there with him as he prepared to die after a battle with brain cancer at, you know, age 38, 39. It was, it was that type of experience. It was the experience of starting a program 
to serve underserved high schoolers and give them the chance to, to do study abroad and get college credit and to believe in themselves or creating a program for people with disabilities to go outdoors and learn um, outdoor activities and leadership. So those are the areas where I found joy. And I realized actually these other things, pursuit of power, pursuit of money, pursuit of, of fame and status, those had been hindrances. Those had been obstacles to me. And so I think James Martin really describes this well. He does a chapter on each of the vows in that book. And he says, look, when you don't have money on your mind. First of all, the reason that vow is important is because we want to try to understand if only barely, in a contrived way, we want to understand how the poor live, because we have a preferential option for the poor in the Catholic Church. But it's also that that, that then frees you from all the worries related to money as well. Similarly with chastity, which I think for many people is kind of the hardest to understand, you know, yes, it's not even the idea of sex. It's the, I think where the real sacrifices is in the, the one-on-one companionship that people in married life have. And yet, you know, Martin says, well, but then you're available in a more radical way. You're available to be there with, uh, for others without an agenda and with all of your time and as the top priority and with obedience. Similarly, there's, there's a relinquishing of power, uh, but there's also a freedom, uh, that comes from saying, you know what? I'm going to discern, but I'm also discerning. I'll give you an example with that. Um, you know, Ezra, would you say you were freer? If I were to say when you were a child, and I don't know a lot about your childhood. Um, so, but, but, you know, would you say you were freer when you were a kid or now? Ooh, free is such a hard word. I don't know what I would say. I definitely, would I have felt freer as a kid? Absolutely. It seems to me what you're getting at is this idea, um, Patrick Deneen writes about this really well, I think, that there's an older conception of freedom as something that comes amidst discipline, uh, that comes amidst constraint. And that there has been this false promise in, I don't mean liberalism here as in the American left, I mean liberalism here as in the broad Western conception of philosophical liberalism, that there was this promise of freedom through choice. And it is built on a fundamental misunderstanding of human nature because you begin to be hemmed in by your choices, confused by them, locked in by them. The possibility of endless choice always makes you feel unsatisfied with what you have. And I certainly feel a lot of that. Um, I I didn't feel very free as a kid is, a, is part of why I'm hesitating on this because I had a slightly, I was always a little bit of a square peg in a round hole as a child. Um, and so there was a real freedom. I felt freest in my early 20s when I had find a, found a context that fit me, but hadn't made a lot of decisions yet. But you know, the last couple of years have been in many cases an effort to scale down because I find a lot more, because I do find a lot more freedom when I'm just, <laughs> when things are a lot quieter. Yeah. And, and, and I think, look, when I talk about taking these vows, I'm not advocating that, you know, broad swaths of society do this. Um, you know, we, we, we particularly need people not to take, you know, vows of, of, of chastity and promise of celibacy. I mean, so it's not, it's, it's not that I'm saying that, but I think that, you know, you can learn a lot about certain virtues or um, certain 
behaviors by looking at them along a spectrum. And I think that what religious life is, the term in, 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 a, in a, you know, in a faith community that we use is it's, it's, it's witnessing, right? It's giving witness to the power of these things by living them in a more absolute way. But it's also, you know, but by doing that, both for me as an individual, I'm allowed to then, co- you know, kind of consecrate my work within the context of those more radical freedoms that come from the constraints. But it's also a way to, to show others that, hey, look, n- no one's saying that, you know, you should uh, take a vow of obedience to the Catholic Church or to any, any other, you know, church or anyone else or a vow of chastity. But maybe you want to recognize that if I'm this fulfilled and this happy by doing this to the extreme, that perhaps there's some room for moderation for you. Perhaps, you know, being, you know, a, a little more downwardly mobile actually may make you happier. And so it challenges the culture just by virtue of the witness that it presents. And so it has that added benefit. But certainly for me, the primary objective is that by saying, like a child in a way, you know, I'm going to uh, you know, a child in a, in a healthy family should be able to say, you know, I want to go to this high school or do this after school activity. And the parent should listen, but then also the parent should say, well, I don't think this one is good for you because I've lived longer. And so that is, I think, a way to understand what religious life is like with respect to, you know, obedience, where it's not that your position is not taken into account, but it's that you're submitting yourself and you're doing in dialogue with your superiors. And then that becomes, again, a metaphor for the larger moral framework where one can say, well, I want to do this. I want to participate in this activity that uh, may pollute the planet. I want to hold this here before we get into that, because you're exploring this as if you're just anyone. You're not, right? You're a lieutenant governor of a state. You're likely to become the governor of a state in a different path, potentially a senator. You have this capacity to serve on a very, very large scale. And I think the natural question this creates is maybe this other path would be better for you, but in part because you can recognize that, is there any fear that it's selfish to take it, that you, that being able to see some of this puts actually an obligation on you to use the um, positions you have attained or can attain for others, even if it does create a lot of temptation towards corruption. Yeah, you know, th- those, um, I'm really glad you asked that because, you know, those are the comments on Twitter or I made I made the mistake. Although I, I should say, actually, I- I'm glad that I did this, but I, I did uh, briefly look at some of the comments on the Bruni piece and they're almost all supportive, but the ones that are hardest for me to hear are of that type where you know, they're saying, actually, you know, we need more people like you, or this is, you know, you, you should, um, you're exactly the kind of person that should stay. And I guess, you know, not to be overly cute, you know, in a, in a philosophical sense, but I mean, I wouldn't be the person that they're saying I am if I stayed in, you know, in the way that I am. So there, there's a kind of a, there's a paradoxical element to it because, um, 
for me, Ezra, the challenge is that I found that I always had the desire and I, and I, and I feel proud of what I've done in public life to help others. And it's rooted in my faith and it's, and, um, and it's rooted in the values of my constituents as well, whom I've represented. But I also felt very strongly a pull towards accolade culture. And, you know, when I got into politics in 2012, I mean, you know, I know you feel the same way. That does not feel like eight years ago, right? In political time. I mean, when I got into, when I got into politics in 2012, you know, yeah, politicians are politicians and yeah, you know, they want good spin and, and all of those things that you'd see on the West Wing or, or whatever, right? And in, in narrative form or you'd see in, in the media. But since then has come the rise of the celebritician. And I think something even more dangerous than just the celebritician. In fact, kind of the, the idea that a politician can be a salvific figure, you know, can be a messianic figure. And then also combined with the role that lifting up underserved voices, of which blind and Iranian American are, are definitely uh, included, led to a dynamic where I saw myself headed for and attracted to a kind of recognition and, and a kind of gauzy fame and celebrity hoisted upon the dreams and aspirations of people who aren't looking for a lieutenant governor or a governor or a senator. They're looking for a cultural leader. They're looking for a type of, you know, messiah. And I'm not saying they're looking for Jesus. I mean, I'm saying they're looking for whatever, you know, it is that can bring about a social and cultural evolution that fits the ways in which they feel excluded. And I, I just felt wrong about it. I mean, I felt that it was, and th this is, you know, 2017 to 2018, when I was, you know, I, I ended up going to New York, meeting with a top literary agent, doing all the things that one does to capitalize on being, you know, the youngest Democrat in statewide office, a blind Iranian, you know, blind Iranian American Rhodes Scholar, cancer survivor, all those things to start to, to, position myself in that way. And so that felt so at odds. And remember, I, I talked about at Oxford, how I came to start to feel where goodness was. And then you, you of course, you feel the flip side of that. And so I, I felt that wrongness. That's why I started to look for where else might God be calling me. And it's the reason why even after I read those comments, or I hear your question, or my mom's question, or anyone else's about why don't you either stay in politics and do this or do it in some other way. It's the reason why ultimately I, I still continue to feel like this is the right decision. Doesn't that mean that if people, if not just you, but people like you either leave politics or never enter it to begin with, which I think is often true, the field is left to the people who do thrive Amid some of the more toxic dimensions of that culture, which is to say, I don't disagree with any of the critiques you've made. And in fact, I feel some of them around journalism too. And something that I struggle with, even in journalism, is there are 
times when like it feels to me like maybe the best thing to do is like recede from the field, not the field of journalism, but some of the places where I am a presence because I, I just find them to be toxic. But then it also has this feeling where if I think that the direction this is going is a bad direction, then if I have some traction on it, do I really just want to cede that to the people who I think thrive in that bad direction? And I find that to be a really hard question. But, but I think you've, I mean, I actually think you've navigated, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, I think you've navigated that in your own way. First of all, I, l- let me let me give one point that I want to make sure I don't miss. Um, but uh, but then I want to make this other thing about about your career is, first of all, I think that for, for most politicians, I do think that having a family of, you know, uh, a spouse and or children is very grounding. I don't think that that's just a talking point when, you know, when you, when you interview someone, you say, what keeps you grounded? You know, and they say, my kids, it's a great thing to say politically, but I also do believe that that is true because I know what it's like without that. And I know that it does then heightens the degree to which your political legacy matters because it's, it's not offset. But the thing I want to say about, about you is that it, it seems to me that you had that frustration with existing media outlets and how you were able to do the work of journalism at those outlets. And you said, I'm going to go a different route and try to do the same thing, but in a different way. And so to me, if it were, okay, leave politics and become totally insular, then, you know, that would be one thing. But that's not the nature of the Catholic Church, where even if you're monastic and don't have any interaction with others, you may even take a, a vow of silence, you're still meant to be praying for others, praying for the world, praying for the poor, uh, praying for the sick. So there's always that outward looking dimension. Now, some people may not think, you know, praying is sufficient. And so that's a, you know, that's a, a an article or a question of faith, but the Jesuits are at the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of religious orders where, you know, Jesuits are focused on really being in the world and serving in the world. And so what I would say is that, you know, to me, the need that we have right now most powerfully, and I say this having, you know, been in politics and seen, you know, all the various things that, that my constituents uh, suffer from and struggle with, but I think what we need most powerfully is a type of companionship and a type of moral, cultural, and social accompaniment with people to help people in their most vulnerable and difficult times, to guide children in not only learning uh, how to get a great job in tech, but also how to be a person who lives for others, and how to address also the deep anxieties that are felt by young people in particular, but I think on some level, but all of us increasingly during this time of economic upheaval and technological change, and at moments particularly like what we're living through right now. And so, you know, I guess I would, I mean, I, I know it doesn't, I know starting Vox, you know, doesn't seem as drastic a move to some as leaving politics and joining a religious order. But I guess I would ask it of you, did, 
you know, did you not struggle with that question of, well, couldn't I just stay in these mainstream outlets that are far better known than what I am, I'm starting at the, at least at, at that initial stage and try to improve them? So, um, I'll, I'll answer quickly on mine, but, and then, and then come back to this because I don't really think about the decision to start Vox in those terms. Uh, that, that wasn't the set of feelings I was responding to. I've had them actually much more in the past couple of years, which I think reflects something happening. I would like to think reflects something happening in the broader political ecosystem. Um, I think that when I, I, I started Vox and I've talked about this many times, uh, on the, on the show alongside obviously Matt and Melissa, to try to solve a problem that I was frustrated by and how we presented journalism and, and try to create some new models. And, and I think with varying levels of success, we've done that. And, and I'm proud to the extent we have. But that's a little bit different than, than something that I'm struggling with more in recent years, which is you know a big theme of my book and something I talk about here, which is that I think all of us, Vox, The New York Times, The Washington Post, um, you name it, Slate, whoever – uh, we are increasingly, and individual journalists are increasingly on platforms and distributing our work through mechanisms that do not make us the best version of ourselves of or of our institutions. Um, Twitter being, I think, in some ways a prime def- uh, offender, but not the only one. I've been up. I'm. I'm. I am involved in cable news. I go on cable news oftentimes a couple times a week. I have complicated feelings about the incentives of that structure, just like I do, by the way, for online journalism, where you know. Getting things distributed through social, you know, amps up your headlines and so on. So I actually mean this in, in something that is much broader. It's more like what you were saying about politics, where it is very hard to imagine how you just start the competitor to all of it simultaneously. Then, you know, the question of I think we should do more contextual work and less and 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 have more things that are catching people up. But I mostly <laughs> I mostly frame that question in terms of myself to make the question I was asking you about yourself softer. So now I'm going to frame it a little bit more sharply and, and say it this way. The way a lot of people think about getting power, particularly political power, but also business power and others, journalistic power, is that it does come with these temptations. It does come with this accolade hunt. It does come with this restless striving to find the next thing. It does come with this exposure to how other people feel about you, all these things that can take you off of the path that initially put you there. But you can also help a lot of people at once. I listened to a speech you gave at the American Constitution Society, and you made this beautiful distinction, which you're a little bit repeating here, between social change and political change. And you talked to functionally a young liberal class of lawyers there about how much you feel the left often, and, and just people in general, do not honor the work of politics, the actual work of getting things done in office, how you know what people want is somebody who speaks for them, not works for them. And you say, uh, it's a kind of joking aside, you say it for a laugh, but you say, you have no idea if I'm good at politics. I am, but you don't know that because you're not from Washington State. And so I take you at your word that you are good at politics. And it seems to me really important to have people good at politics in politics. I mean, I think of in your neighboring state, it is because Senator Ron Wyden, who I have a lot of admiration for, and Senator Michael Bennett, who I feel similarly about, were there that that UI bill, speaking of the poor right now, has a $600 a week increase. And so a lot of people who can't work right now are actually making more than they were before. Like That's the kind of thing somebody good at politics can do. All admiration to them, neither Wyden nor Bennett are the best communicators in the game. That's why Bennett's 
presidential campaign didn't work out, but they're very good at getting things done and they help a lot of people. And it's that tension that I'd like to hear you speak to, because I know that you have spent many nights sitting up thinking about what you could do if you attain some of those positions. I'm sure there's also the other side, which is how it would look to attain them, what the speech would be like, the crowds, like I get that. But also there's a lot of good that can be done. Um, and so how do you think about that, right? The the scale at which you're talking about operating as a Jesuit is just going to be by nature more direct, more one-to-one. And possibly that position, that governorship or senatorship from which you could have done things that would have affected the whole nation, 300 million people, will be instead held by somebody who doesn't really care about that work of politics, but is very good at the celebrity culture of political communication. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I, I, I'm not sure that it is knowable that the scale will be smaller or couldn't have a greater effect. It might and it might not. I mean, you look at who are three of, if not the three most prominent figures I mean, I, I guess you have to include the president too, but, you know, who are three of the, the figures, at least, you know, on the left who have been really lionized over the past couple of months? Anthony Fauci, Andrew Cuomo, and Gavin Newsom, all three of whom have spoken about, including since the pandemic, about their Jesuit education. All three of them were Jesuit educated. Dr. Fauci actually gave the a kind of video commencement speech to all the high school graduates of Jesuit high schools, which you should check out. It's like a three, five minute speech that he put out on YouTube last week, addressing all uh, and talking about his own Jesuit education, high school and college for him. And so I think that there is a huge multiplier effect that can come from education, which is why it's so central to the charism and the, and the spirit and the ministry of the Jesuits. But also, you know, um, you talked about Father Greg Boyle. For every person whom you know he's brought out of gang life, that person is not going to die young, is going to go on and do tremendous and, and wonderful things, probably start a family, create an entire patrimony uh, or matrimony of, uh, you know, of beauty in the world and goodness in the world and truth in the world. So, so I, I guess I don't um, necessarily accept even what you're saying uh, about the the scale. But I take your point that, you know, civil authorities uh, have tremendous power over us in our system of government. And so by power, not through influence, they can make a huge difference, uh, particularly in executive office, uh, as we've seen recently. But what I would say is, first of all, you know, you made this point in your chapter about the media, where you said, you know, you were talking about how, how the media will kind of elevate the other side, um, the, the kind of most frightening version of the other side, like Elon Omar on Fox News um, or Steve King on MSNBC. And that's true, but it's also true on our own respective sides that, you know, you look at people and think about some of the names who are floated for vice president or the names that are, um, you know, the people who become sensations. I know many of them, and they're wonderful people and smart people, and I have no reason to believe that they wouldn't do a commendable job. But what the voter is looking for right now 
isn't your kind of Ron Wyden figure. And as you pointed out, your, your Bennett figure and look at how the governors did. And, and, you know, yeah, there's some question about, well, are governors having a moment? Perhaps, but I'll tell you, there's a lot more excitement in the base for like a Warren vice presidentship or, or Stacey Abrams, you know, than Gretchen Whitmore, you know, uh, who I think, makes all the sense in the world. So I, I do think that there's something about which, you know, you wrote a whole book on it. So your audience is familiar with, with your thoughts on this. And I, I largely agree that I think that there's something that has become broken about how we even evaluate the quality of our public officials. And so for me personally, the problem is I wouldn't, to return to the personal nature of the question, Patty Murray is, in my view, the best member of Congress from a, from a competence point of view. You know, she did a, a budget deal with Paul Ryan. She did a, an education bill with Lamar Alexander. You know all this. And she's, she's a phenomenal public official. I wish that I had it in me to be a politician like Patty Murray. But the problem is, one, I don't know whether Patty Murray could win in a primary today if she were running for the first time given kind of what people now seem to really want to see. And, and secondly, I know my own temptations. I know my own desire. And I would be, I, I hate to say this because it's so embarrassing to admit this to people, but that I would be Patty Murray. And I know she's not like this. I mean, I, I have every reason to believe she's like, but I would be thinking, why are they interviewing Cory Booker, who just got here, and I've been here doing this stuff, and he's the shiny object right now, or, or Kamala Harris the shiny object right now, that would be my temptation. It would be so challenging that I can't say that I wouldn't seek the spokesman role and seek the, the kind of let me give you what you want to hear instead of try to get you the solutions. I can't say that I wouldn't be drawn to that and then the final thing I'll say about the personal element of this is that there's no shortage of people who want to run for office, including people who are very well-intentioned and good-hearted. There is a shortage of people who want to um, and who, who care to kind of minister to others in this type of way, and particularly those who kind of have my experience and education, which I think then can allow me, we'll see what ministry I end up uh, or ministries I end up doing, but will allow me to to do it in, in, a, in a way that I think will be unique to me and, and be kind of uniquely valuable. Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbara Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth, whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. 
You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I want to pick up on on something you said now, moving a little bit off of this topic of, of politics. That strikes me as really important, and which is you you talked about witnessing and witnessing in what you called a countercultural way. And I've been reading some uh, again in your recommendation, papal encyclicals, and there's a, a an argument through Catholicism right now, and it sounds like an argument that you are really making that something has gone wrong in the culture in a profound way, that it's some of its foundational premises have just turned out to be wrong. And we've, in some ways, I think, been talking about at least a couple of them here, uh, like what what people think will make them feel free uh, as one. But there's all these ideas about throwaway culture and you know how we live in harmony or not in harmony with the environment. Um, the, Pope Francis is very thoughtful, I think, on social media and the sense of like constant distraction. And it seems to me that one thing that you were looking to do, which you found in politics, but also can't really address through politics, is say that like maybe just the boundaries on the conversation are wrong, like what the conversation is about is wrong. And so I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about that. Like perhaps you're what at least I think is a sense that there's maybe something more wrong in the culture than politics, which operates inside the culture, can quite speak to. Let me tell it to you from from a biographical perspective, which is that from the time I became blind, I was very fortunate to have parents who, who believed very strongly that I could do anything that that I set my mind to, and they were willing to fight for me and advocate for me and teach me how to advocate for myself. And that served me really well. And it gave me the tools of, of strength and, and independence and resilience and all those things um, to travel the road, as they say, from Braille to Yale. But there have been moments in my life, like when my father uh, was diagnosed with cancer, which is how I got to read James Martin's book, was a priest recommended to me because I asked him, I don't know how to pray about this. There have been moments in my life where I have confronted my own weakness and fragility. That there's some things that, that despite how I was trained to believe, you know, I'm not disabled, I'm strong, I'm capable, I could do it on my own, all of those things, while true, if taken to an extreme, can crowd God out, can leave no room for grace. And in our culture, there is this uh, maximum. And you don't, and you know, Trump is the, Trump is the easiest and, and, you know, almost kind of, I mean, not even, he's a caricature of this. But, you know, you, you find it in other arenas of politics as well around who's the strongest champion. You know, I, I, I don't know if it was you or Nate Silver, or you know, there, there was, um, you know, someone smart who did kind of like a, a word 
uh, graph of like, you know, different words used in campaigns like fighter and, and these kinds of things. And so there is, you know, certainly. Oh yeah, that was me. Was that you? Yeah. So, <laughs> yes. um, okay, good. Well, let's make fighter sure Nate doesn't hope. get credit for that one. Yeah. Nate, Nate wouldn't have done a word cloud. He would have done some kind of regression analysis. Right. Right. And then said, and then talked about how, um, we can't really rely on this. Uh, we need to revisit it in three days. So those words in, in our politics, they're not made up by politicians. They're not the fault of the media. They respond to something that we've come, I think, in the culture to really desi- desire, which is maximalist, which is aggressive, which is zero sum. And I guess, let me ask you this question. Like, you, you know, you look at, at Dr. King. And, you know, you talked, you know, you wrote a lot about identity. You've had tons of amazing interviews with folks about identity, including racial identity. Do you think that Dr. King's message, were he speaking today, like, would he be woke enough? Um, I think it's always tricky to just try to transmute somebody from the 60s to the 20s. What if the, the disaster? <laughs> but, um, yes, I do. I think... I really would encourage everybody to read his final book, Where Do We Go From Here, From Chaos uh, Chaos or Community. That is a radical book. The 60s, the boundaries on what people were thinking about were really wide. And yes, there, there are parts of King that would not work today. You know, There are other things that I think we have advanced on quite dramatically, but there are parts of him that are much more radical than we are today. Parts of him King's critique of capitalism is much more radical than Bernie Sanders' critique of capitalism. There's no doubt about that at all. And his critique in that book in particular of sort of white allyship and what it do- where it is or is not willing to go and what it means for inequality. So yeah, I, I mean, whether he'd be woke enough on some of the things where the culture was in a very different place, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know who he'd be today. But I think there, there's a kind of sanitized king that, that that people often point to, which wouldn't be woke enough. But if you really look behind that, I'm not saying, you know, so, so yes, I think, you know, you even look, I mean, uh, you were referring to Laudato Si and Pope Francis, but if you even look at Pope Benedict, you know, conservative Pope, I mean, his writings on capitalism and the environment are to the left of our political discourse here in the United States, for sure. And that's true. And that was true of King and so on. I guess what I'm saying, and, and woke is a, is a, is a complicated and, and, you know, term with, with lots of baggage that's hard to, to decontextualize, um, from, from, from our moment in history. But, you know, I guess what I mean is King's approach wasn't just a kind of formalistic pacifism in the, in the sense of saying nonviolence means technically don't punch or shoot. There's a radical pacifism to him throughout his, his public ministry that is, you know, rooted, I think, in, in, in a sense of one's smallness in history, a kind of humility that for him existed vis-a-vis, and that, yes, this is a big and important historic moment, and that we need to marshal all our resources, but also that more important than winning, getting the bill passed, or, or winning the rhetorical argument is a kind of style and approach and a, and a principled outlook on how we treat one another, whether it's at the level of an individual encounter or, or collectively. And that I, I don't, you know, there's an anger in the culture and clearly it's an analog in our 
politics and our culture, it's, it's kind of, it's an analog to the maximalism of consumerism. More is always better. Temperance or nuance is perceived of as, you know, as weak and, and so on. Yeah, there's a bunch there. I, and, and I think you pick up on something important where I was going to take the king thing as well, which is woke, I think, means in people's head a certain set of ideas, particularly on on race and gender issues. But King's approach to politics had a rigor and an idea that means have to match your ends, which I think would put him out of step with a lot of people today. Um, if you really read the nonviolent theorists of that age, what they are willing to do and suffer and go through and think through and and hold to is very humbling. But But here's, in some ways, my challenge with it. Everybody represents either by embracing it and and trying to master it or by positioning against it, the communication mediums of their moment. And part of King's genius was a televisual genius. He understood what television was. And part of the reason his approach to nonviolence was done in the way it was, was he was creating images the country couldn't forget. Right. I mean, and there's a lot of scholars who have written about this. It's, it's, you know, the, the images on the newspapers and on the televisions that King was constructing, right? He was like a stage manager and he understood that in a way his, his opponents didn't. That's not to take away from his commitment or the, the risks he ran, but it was also shaped by what medium he was conducting his campaigns in. And you think about a King on Twitter. Or in anybody on Twitter. I mean, a, a minute or two ago, you brought up Donald Trump and then you put him down really fast because he said he's almost a caricature. And I see people do this all the time. And it's a really interesting thing that there are things about him that are so frustrating, to put it gently, that it feels unfair to make him the representative of anything in the age. And yet he is literally the president, right? He, he like emerges through a set of new communication mediums, understands them so fully and intuitively that he becomes the most powerful person in the world, and uh, at least <laughs> measured by nuclear weapons. And and so people are like, well, you can't, and, but no, I actually think you should try to think about what he represents. And so would King's approach to politics, would that work in the age of social media? Or would people who were, I don't want to call them much more radical, because I don't think that's the right word, but um, I think much more dehumanizing. Is actually what I'm looking for here. Would they would they lap him? That I don't know, and I think is a much I think is a much harder question. I mean, do you think of you know so you know Pope Francis and and this was deemed as, as controversial in that encyclical. He, he actually kind of makes the case that technology. I mean, I think he actually says it. Technology is not neutral. Not that he favors kind of a rejection or, or a, you know, he's not, he's not, he's not kind of pure romanticist. And I know that he has talked about how we need to use new forms of evangelization and, and, and the media and the internet and so on. So there's, there's two ways of viewing it and they're not mutually exclusive, but I think there's, there's two different ways to approach it. One is to say, we have become a more hard hearted people. We are less forgiving than we used to be and so on. And, and you've, I think, presented a, a good critique of that and said, like, look, let's look at how people act. Let's not romanticize the 40s, 50s and 60s, like what was really going on in this country then, you know, but, you know, so you can say one is that we're kind of less forgiving. We have we're less filled with kind of grace towards those with whom we disagree and so on. Another is to say that 
the just certain technologies combined with certain economic models tied to those technologies are actually net negative. Like they, you know, or, you know, at least net negative in, in this regard, which is that yes, they can spread the Dalai Lama's message and Pope Francis's message and, you know, or, or a photo of like a four year old, you know, making a mask for, for nurses or whatever, like beautiful and, and, and loving things. But it's much more technologically and economically inclined and incentivized towards outrage, as, as you talk about. So which do you think or do you think there's some third approach that, that can explain, you know, that can explain this? Because I think it's to me, I find it in the pol- and I think politicians, you know, we're very simple creatures. We respond to incentives. If it were the case that the way you could win a competitive primary in Washington state was to be kind of the most collegial or the most effective at having passed legislation, people would do that. Like politicians would do that. Instead, what people want what the end user, what the voter seems to want, what gets big rallies, what gets lots of retweets is something different. Whether we pin that on cultural changes, secularization, a kind of moral relativism, you know, the consumer culture, or whether we say actually it's something about the technology and the economics that have made us, twisted us into something we're not, I think matters. I think it does matter. And I think there are, I would pull apart a couple of things here. I mean, one thing that it seems to me is worth saying is that you keep, if you were listening to this and you, the only thing you knew about politics is what you were, was what Cyrus Habib was saying right now about what works, you would get who is winning elections quite wrong. Not in all cases, right? Donald, as I mentioned, Donald Trump is a president, but he got fewer votes than the person he was running against in your state. Um, I have a lot of admiration for Jay Inslee, who I think I have sat down with Jay Inslee a number of times. I do not mean this as any disrespect to Jay Inslee. He is not the most scintillating communicator I've ever dealt with, but he is a remarkably good governor, thinker. He has attached himself to the right issue of our age. He has, you know, he's done a lot um, going back quite a long time now. I mean, you're lieutenant governor of that state. Joe Biden won the Democratic primary. Biden was not my first choice by any means, um, to, to be honest about it, but he certainly does not reflect a kind of celebrity culture, you know, the loudest voice in the room, the most outrageous voice in the room approach. Um, that just isn't who he is or what he is. And it's not why he won. And so one, I think it's worth saying that these trends are there and anybody in politics feels them in their power, but they are not yet dominant. They are in tension with other things and possibly even creating their own counter reactions. So I always want to be a little bit careful. But to the other question you asked about, is it a net negative? I mean, if you forced me to choose, yes, I think it is. Um, Before coronavirus, I was working on a piece that's now on hold, but I've been reading a bunch of the critics of television. And so like Neil Postman, or there's a book by a guy named Jerry Mandel, I think it's called Four Arguments for the Elimination of Television, um, and, and, and things like that. And one of the things that is so striking about reading what were really hair on fire, super concerned critiques of the coming age of television, you know, as people recognize it's sort of culture changing force in the 70s and 80s, is I think we look back and we assume they had to be wrong about what they were warning about because society kept running and functioning. And when I read them, they were right. And 
not only did a lot of what they warned about come to pass, but in many cases, it came to pass much worse than they possibly could have imagined. I mean, Neil Postman, you can extrapolate Trump from where he is going, but you would he would never have said it. Like it looks ridiculous um, if you just went back and explained it to say nothing of Twitter and what Twitter is and how that's become the dominant political communications medium. And so I think it is possible for, yes, for us to move on to communications platforms that are harnessing the wrong parts of ourselves and for that to have a long-term really bad effect. Now, you can make a more optimistic argument that we're in the early stages of these. We're going to figure out how to use them better, figure, you know, build more cultural immune system. Or you can just say we're going to become distracted all over the place, hyperactive in our thinking, certainly what I feel in myself and am fighting with. So I don't know. I But yeah, like I don't think we are, if you ask me, I don't think that net-net the communication changes of the past decade or two have actually been good for politics. And I think you can see that if you look at politics, right? If they had been good for politics, politics would look better right now. Yeah. And I think that they're not, and I don't want to peddle in like kind of, you know, pseudoscience, you know, but I suspect, and I know there's been some, re- you know, scholarship around this, that they're not great for young people and for issues around, you know, self-image, issues around kind of, you know, anxiety, issues around one's sense of purpose and meaning in the world. And I, and I, so, so one of the things to go back to, you know, your question about how does one make a decision or discern where one should be focusing one's life? To me, I feel like when I say I want to accompany and provide companionship to people and, and to, to try to work on that level of the culture, even if you have to start person by person is to recognize that at least when it was TV, you know, and in, and in for the past, you know, couple hundred years, this is a country rooted in the individualistic premises of classical liberalism. But at the same time, it's also been a very religious country where the greatest reforms that we have seen have been rooted in and really born out of the kind of collective compassion and sense of responsibility fostered by faith communities, whether it's Quakers or Jewish or Catholic or mainline Protestants and others. And so, so all of these movements have been kind of rooted in that precisely when the individual's interest actually had to be kind of set aside, you know? So how does one put aside one's white privilege to fight for civil rights for Black Americans? Well, because one learns that in the context of a faith community where looking out for just yourself is anathema. And so, now, as we've, you know, as those institutions, not to mention other civic institutions, have lost power and influence, particularly with newer generations, where's the kind of armor that can protect us, I guess, from the excesses and harms of this particular technology and suite of technologies, this particular concentration of economic power tied to those technologies, and hopefully not just defensively protect us from becoming the worst versions of ourselves, but where then come the kind of weapons of grace? Like, how do we actually create a more compassionate and generous country that says, you know what? Okay. And I'll give you, I'll give you a, a personal example I use a lot where I say, you know, I'm blind. I've lived for 30 years in a world, you know, that's been built by and for sighted people. 
that comes with its frustrations. I definitely have a huge deficit of privilege when it comes to that. But at the same time, you know, when somebody, and it happens every single day that someone will, pre-corona, every single day that someone will ask some stupid question or thing like, oh, how do you, you know, do you, you know, it's so impressive that you can climb those stairs, you know? And of course, there's a part of me that gets really defensive and says, I'm a road scholar. What do you mean I can climb those stairs? You know what I mean? Like, do you know who I am? Like the, the climb stairs, the least of what I can do. And, and all of that. And I want to lash back at them and, you know, feel that defensiveness. And I used to, and that's part of what I, what I mean when I talk about conversion is that I, I learned how I just felt awful afterwards uh, and they felt awful afterwards. So that takes a kind of training and guidance and formation and shaping that I don't know that our STEM, you know, STEM-based, you know, highly pre-vocational education system as, as it's, in, it's moving in that direction and our, our dearth of civic institutions, I don't know that it's preparing us to do that. And so instead, our, on the social justice left, we do a lot of yelling and, and virtue signaling and we're right on these things. But we're not going to have the kind of success that King had or that Gandhi had or that even, you know, that the Dalai Lama has had. One of the things that I think is an interesting tension here is that you see the armor, including the armor to this kind of political polarization and and and, and some of these more negative, nuanced, hostile forms of politics as coming from, from religious orders. And Without making you answer on any one specifically, I think something that is disappointing to those of us who maybe are not ourselves religious, but will sometimes look to those traditions to try to see if there's something there, has been to see many of the people most associated with them who are in the political space are the worst with this. And that is true with some of the people from various Christian um, denominations. It is true with some of the rabbis who are in, who have a political voice. And, you know, and partly if you go to other countries where other uh, religions are more represented in, in structures of power, it's true with all of them. I'm continuously somewhat, not just disappointed, but disheartened with how little armor sometimes a faith tradition seems to give people from these currents and how actually easily it can become a kind of accelerant because it offers a deeper form of justification for your hostilities. I always think that the people like Andrew Sullivan, when they say, you know, oh, the problem is that like wokeness has become a religion. I like Andrew personally. It almost sometimes sounds to me like telling on themselves that like, I don't really think wokeness is a religion, but to the extent that it is, it says something really grim about religion. If that is the analogy one reaches for. Because for so many people, religion is supposed to be this armor, but then you actually look at how most of them use it in the public field and it, it falls apart really quickly. Yeah. It's, I mean, that's, that is, and, and I want to be clear, like, I don't believe nor from what I understand, I mean, nor, nor does the, the Catholic church believe that like you need to be religious in order to be a good person. In fact, Pope Francis talks about this a lot and it was, it was, you know, a big, part of what the Vatican II, the Second Vatican Council in the, in the 60s, what it really kind of established was this recognition that, you know, God can work through many different traditions. And while that takes nothing away 
from the truth of the gospel, but that, you know, God is, you know, big enough and, um, you know, to and universal and so can work through people of, of even no faith. Um, part of the fact that we, we do have a conscience. I mean, we have as, um, you know, as Augustine said, we have hearts that contain a God-shaped hole, meaning that we, we do, um, you know, or, or C.S. Lewis describes it this way that, you know, every desire that we have has an, has a fruition. Like we have hunger, we feel hunger, and that's, you know, validated by the fact that food exists. You know, we feel sexual desire, and that's validated by the fact that there's something that can fulfill that desire. And similarly, every society across time has felt a desire, including the secular West young people right now, I think feel a desire to find fulfillment, meaning purpose, and an answer to the question why. And so that's there. It doesn't mean that if, you know, somebody hasn't answered that question, hasn't found the answer, or finds a different answer than the one that I have, that that means somehow they're going to be not as honest a person or good as politics. And, And as to your point, it doesn't mean that somebody who shares my faith or has a faith is going to be a good person. But look, that's like saying that we shouldn't bother to study biology because some of the, I don't know, I mean, this is maybe a, a, a squishy analogy, but, you know, because so, some of the people who study anal- uh, biology are themselves uh, get sick or because our understandings of these things uh, have been wrong and the people who have studied science in the past have been dead wrong. Aristotle is not lessened by Galileo. You know, Aristotle and his work on, on really the proto-scientific method and so on was essential. And so do people get it wrong? Absolutely. Do they, can they get it particularly wrong when they marshal their education, including religious education over others? Absolutely. Can doctrine be weaponized like any other ideology to play on people's fears? For sure. And in, and in many ways, even more powerfully than other things. But falsehood doesn't negate truth. In fact, it, it validates it. The very fact that there is a wrongness when someone blows themselves up in the name of Islam, right? And says, like, I'm doing this for God. The very fact that we know that to be wrong and that we feel the wrongness even more powerfully because the person's doing it out of faith instead of out of greed or something like that, I think speaks to the fact that it's distortion of the truth. And oftentimes that is the guise in which, right? When Think about it even in your own life. You know, any of us can feel this way that, Often when we've been the most wrong is when there's just a, a slight distortion of what is actually true. We're close to what it is, but something has gotten twisted or mistaken. So 100% people, all people should be held accountable in a spirit of grace. And certainly those who profess to, to teach or to guide others need to hold themselves to a high standard. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. 
questions, including what are we missing when we work remotely or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the future of work, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Prop G Pod wherever you get your podcasts. One of the things in some of the comments you've made about this decision has been you've used the word joy a lot. And you've said, among other things, that you you spent time at a speech with the, the Dalai Lama. I think you partially interviewed him. And there was a kind of joy coming off of him. And that you noticed when you looked around politics and you looked around at spiritual elders that the, the sort of latter had a joy about them that the former didn't have. And I think it's a very foundational foundational cultural idea that if you can make it to the top of achievement mountain that there is joy there waiting for you that you will feel accomplished enough that you will feel like you won they'll be able to help people or buy the things that will make you happy or get the partner who will make you happy or whatever it might be and you know you got a pretty far up achievement mountain here and what you know you're saying is that not only do you not feel that joy but the people who seem higher up than you seem to have even less of it. And I'd be curious to hear you talk about that a bit and and, and what you've come to think joy comes from. Yeah, I um you know, I'm glad you raised it because again, it, and, and I, I feel terrible because Frank Bruni is amazing, which is why I, I did the the interview with him and and I think he did a great job. But again, if you just read that story, you it it, it doesn't capture it wasn't his goal and 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 I also maybe didn't surface it enough. And, and maybe I haven't so far in our conversation that, you know, if you read it, you would just think it was running away. And it, it seemed quite kind of joyless in a way, the decision I'm making. Part of my job, a kind of minor, but, but, um, uh, turns out quite meaningful part of my job as president of our state Senate, which is what the lieutenant governor, one of the things the lieutenant governor does is to, um, we have a, um, a prayer or invocation at the beginning of every Senate session. And so, we don't have a, uh, you know, a Pat Conroy, uh, equivalent. Uh, we bring in different chaplains, different members of the clergy and, and so on to come into the Senate. And so I meet with them for about 10 minutes before we start the day in the Senate. And I came to just love those encounters. I mean, they were rabbis and Protestant pastors and Catholic priests and Buddhist leaders. And in those conversations, just you know, like 10 minutes. I'd always ask kind of like, what, what, what was your journey to this job and, and how did you get here? Because I was, you know, this is all, you know, people didn't know, but I was also kind of discerning my own vocation at the same time. And I wanted to ask these people. And you know, almost without fail, there was this lightness, uh, a peacefulness with where they are and with what they're doing that I just, I found so attractive. And it was from all different traditions. And, you know, the, the kind of apotheosis or the apex of that was the Dalai Lama. And, you know, people who have absolutely no faith in, in a religion and certainly not, you know, Tibetan Buddhist, um, have talked about, you know, when you meet him and I've had the, the honor of meeting him and getting to talk to him twice in these private meetings. When you're in his presence, you feel a holiness. And I spent a lot of time thinking about what is that holiness? Because from my tradition's perspective, you know, the Dalai Lama does not even, you know, he does not profess a belief in God, you know? And so, so in a way, I was like, well, what, what is it? 
because it's it's um it could be closeness to god but if so it's not one that he's experiencing or knows that he's experiencing so what is it that and i and i realize what i what it is this sense that he gives off that he is totally actualized in what he's doing that there's no pretense that there's no that he has become his true self you know thomas merton talk, talks about this that you know he says i become a saint by becoming my true self. And that is what is saintly in the Dalai Lama and in, in some other men and women whom I've met in various forms of consecrated life. Now, you don't need, again, to go back to what I said earlier, it's not that you need to do that in order to become a saint or saintly or, or holy, but he has dedicated his life. And these other men and women I described, they've dedicated their lives in a more serious way to serving others and to being right where they need to be, not to some further thing or some next step or, or whatever, but they've all, to various degrees, and not every, not every clergy is the same. I mean, certainly there are priests who want to be bishops and there are bishops who want to be pope. But they have, um, you know, the ones who I've met, who, who, who I, where I experienced that holiness are the ones where I feel this person has truly come to terms with who it is that they are through a really rigorous process of discernment and to use the word you highlighted noticing. And that's, you know, my, what you call mindfulness, presence. Then there's that joy that is not the kind of uneasy cocktail party laugh, not the glance that is looking over your shoulder for who's who else should I be talking to, not checking your phone to see okay, what's my next appointment, but the kind of joy that says, I am exactly where I want to be, doing exactly what I should be doing, and and feeling true joy as, you know, I've 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 found uh my home. And so that to me became so attractive. And you know, I don't want to single out politicians. I mean, I think, you know, you find this in, in many different arenas, but does anybody really believe that the happiest people in this country are the richest people? I mean, um, Professor Markovitz at Yale Law, you know, right, talks about how, you know, the, the meritocracy trap doesn't just trap those who are cut out of its economic logic, but also makes completely miserable those who are, quote unquote, winners in that logic. Yeah, there's a very one of the things I was thinking about while you were uh talking through that is that I wonder how much some of this is about knowing who you are versus simply being embedded in a set of practices that don't make you miserable. <laughs> and I do think that um we've gotten very good as a culture, as technologists, as whatever at building systems that hijack really powerful impulses and drives in like the human creature. And that sort of striving and status obsession, that sort of drive towards identity and groupishness, those are really big. And we built all these things that play on them. I mean, when you're dealing with these CEOs who make 60 million a year or 100 million a year or have $500 million in the bank, they're not making more money because they need more money. They're making more money because they need more status. And money has become a point system that shows who's the best. And 
this is why I'm I'm actually so interested in your particular story because look like if you were a politician who was converting to Catholicism or saying you'd become born again or had joined a a, a Jewish Torah study group I wouldn't look at it twice but I really appreciate your continuous use of the word countercultural I think there's something to the critique that our culture is full of systems now that pull on parts of us or supercharge parts of us that make us pretty unhappy. Parts of us that maybe could be imbalanced in another context, but you just don't want to hit it, hit the gas on it that hard. But we have so many things from sort of meritocracy to capitalism to Twitter to whatever that are enlarging parts of our identity that are not the parts of our identity that do the best for us. And sometimes, you know, in the Jesuit tradition, people talk about being contemplatives in action. Uh, or contemplatives in the world. And I think that oftentimes a stress there that people put is the world or inaction. But oftentimes when I meet some of these more spiritual um, figures, what strikes me is just the that there's a, a peacefulness and an ease that comes from continuous practices of contemplation. Because I think that they free you from some of that. Yeah, and 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 the culture that comes from community, you know, of living in community with other people who are also wrestling with that, you know, who also have to, you know, if you're a professor at Georgetown as a Jesuit, I'm sure you're also, um, you know, you may also be wrestling with, you know, how do I um, get my book published and how do I make sure that book is successful and how do I maybe become department chair? So those things are are there, but part of it is by having a life that's structured around vows, one, two, prayer, and that 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 contemplative process that's built into your day and that you can't kind of you know, you know, it's, it's, it's a requirement and it becomes habitual. And then three community that you're, that you're living with that becomes your family of people who are traveling that journey with you. Those become really valuable because the question, and I don't quite have the, the answer to this at all. And I, and I know you, you know, you think about it. So maybe you can help with this is what does someone, someone's listening to this and they say, okay, I don't want to become a nun. I don't want to become a rabbi, but you know, I you know, I, I kind of like this. I I get the critique of the throwaway culture. I get the, cult, the critique of the accolade culture. What can I do to be more spiritually minded? And the challenge is that on one hand, people want that. On the other hand, they say, well, but there's this or that thing I don't like about or an organized religion. I mean, Sundays are just really hard for me. You know what I mean? Or I would love to be vegetarian, but I just, you know, I struggle with this myself. You know, like I just grew up eating meat and it's just really hard for me to be happy eating meals when I don't eat meat. You know, so there are these things. How can I find a spirituality that fits me? And then the challenge that becomes, does spirituality, you know, your soul cycle or your whatever, like, does it become another product? Does it become another kind of commodity that can be tailored to your individual desires? Because I truly think that that type of spirituality, because it doesn't challenge us and because it maintains the kind of moral relativism of the marketplace, I think we instinctively feel that it is inadequate and we instinctively feel that it's a hobby. And so then like every other hobby, you know, something comes up and, and, and we won't commit ourselves to it, even if it has true depth and meaning and value, which most do, 
that's something I, I, I'm very eager to, to learn about in my own Jesuit formation, but you've thought about it. I mean, what should a listener kind of take from this? I don't, I don't think I'm the person to ask. Uh, that, that's why you're here. <laughs> Look, like I, I will. the only thing I will say on it is that the lesson for me over a long period of time is that moderation is hard. Uh, the things that tend to work are immoderate. I mean, it's again, one reason I'm interested in people who join a, a monkish ascetic tradition. And so I don't think, I think there's a lot of practices to meditate for 10 minutes a day, and that's all great. And I actually want to talk to you about one before we end here. But to what you're talking about in the culture, I think that if you think something is wrong, it is worth considering bigger changes than we are taught to be comfortable considering to change it. And that's hard. I think in many ways, it is easier to be vegan than to eat less meat, a lot easier. It is easier for me, speaking of eating, just not keep sweets in the house and to eat them in moderation. That's not going to work the other way. It's easier for me to block Twitter entirely on my computer. And one thing I've done for a long time now is I've I've actually like truly blocked the notifications page. I just can't see if people mention me on Twitter. And I can't see any, I have a little thing called the Twitter Demetricator, um, which is a Chrome extension. So I can't see any numbers on Twitter. So, so I don't see, know if people- You can't see all the times I've positively- um, no, I have no idea. your content. Okay. I appreciate that, but no, I can't see, I don't see any notifications. I don't see, um, and I don't see how many retweets or anything my stuff gets. And that's why I don't use Twitter that much because it it robs it of that addictive quality. And then I'm like left with the stuff that, you know, I'm, I'm not that uh, attuned to. Anyway, that's how I do some of this, but I'm also caught up in a lot of things that I don't love and I'm constantly in struggle with. But I did want to... Um, the work I did to prepare for this, to talk with you, actually introduced me to a contemplative practice that I really like and have been using uh, quite often that I thought maybe you wouldn't mind explaining because it's the core of the Jesuit order, which are the examines. Yeah. Yeah. The examination of conscience or the examine, it's a really important part of my spiritual life. And I'll describe it. And then I'll also say that there's a podcast that that James Martin, whose name has come up a few times, that he does where he walks you through it. And it's pretty much the same. So it, it's, it doesn't really need to be a podcast, except that he does a weekly reflection that he changes every week at the beginning of it. And then the rest of it's pre-recorded. But it's a process of, and it can be done by, you don't have to be Catholic. You don't have to be Christian. You don't have to be a person of faith. It's designed for someone who is a believer in God, but it is, you know, but, but you could definitely get value out of it even without, um, confessing God. So the way it works is you take 10 minutes to review your day and there's, there's kind of variations on, on how people do it. But the, the way that James Martin does it, and I think the most common way is you start out, you ask for God's presence. You, you kind of ask God, you know, be with me in this moment. And Jesuits make a lot, they, they use the imagination a lot. They, they believe, you know, our imagination is a gift from God. We don't know whether other creatures experience imagination or not, but we know that it's something that is, is definitely human and, and, to be, and to be celebrated. And so that we use our imagination to kind of imagine ourselves with God in a way that would feel, you know, natural, like that would feel like you're, you know, talking to a friend. And, and the reason for that is not that God needs that, but it's just to kind of put you in a mode of relaxation, you know? So take a deep breath, slow down, ask for God's presence in your prayer at that time. And then you think about just a few things that you feel 
grateful for, a couple of things that you feel grateful for in the day. And these can be really significant things like, you know, uh, I, I proposed marriage and, and she said yes. Or it could be, you know, I ate a sandwich at this deli and it was just unbelievable. It was so delicious. And I just, you know, I'd, I'd never had a, a Reuben that good. So, so you just kind of, what are the few things that just come to mind first, just pop to mind and you savor them and you really indulge in the experience of, of kind of relishing them, thinking about the, you know, using your senses and your memory and your imagination, just kind of remember how good these things were. And so you do that for a couple minutes, you know, pick up a few items, and then you go back and you move through your day, kind of step by step from when you woke up, and you look for God's presence, you look for grace in your day. And also, um, you know, where where you found it harder to find that grace. So you might find, you know, so you might say, you know, I, I took an Uber in the morning and I had this, you know, conversation with this Uber driver who was telling me about how she is so proud of her baby, you know, her toddler who just took his first steps or whatever, you know, and I, you know, I had this conversation or, or this person was really helpful to me and gave me an extra latte at Starbucks or whatever. So, so you kind of look through those things, but you might also notice things where you say, God, you know, I, I was talking to my dad and, um, you know, I just, we just couldn't connect and we just were talking past each other. And you kind of examine those, you know, those different moments. You go through the day all the way till the end of the day. Most people do it at the end of the day. And you're just looking, you're just noticing, you know, you're noticing God's presence or where you found it hard to find God, you know, in, in certain encounters. And then you, next step is you, you identify those moments that you regret and those those moments where you feel that you did something wrong you know people are so frightened i I don't like to use the word sin in this context because it's so fraught in our culture but really it just means you know where are areas where you made an error where you you know did you wish you had a take back and you kind of identify it and you make you know you resolve i'm going to do better and maybe you even say, here's how I'm going to do better, you know? And it could be absence as much as presence. It could be, you know, I didn't call my grandmother again, you know, and I'm, I'm going to do it tomorrow and, I, and I'm going to do it before dinner. So I remember that I'm going to do it and I'm going to do it before dinner. I'm going to make a note for myself. And then finally, you close by just asking for God's presence in your day tomorrow and, and saying, you know, please, you know, let me have the grace to notice you again um, tomorrow. And I'll tell you what's most valuable about this for me is, uh, first of all, it's good for the working person. So I'm not a Jesuit yet. I have a job and I'm busy. And so it's something that, you know, you know, you can fit into your day. Secondly is it is you notice patterns. I really mean this. I hope your listeners can tell by now that I'm not overly precious about these things. You know, I will tell you, I thought, okay, I'm going to do this. I'll see what happens and I'll give it a shot. And truly, you will start to notice really positive things. You'll notice, you know, oh my God, this person is so nice. I didn't even remember, you know, especially if you're a busy person as Vox, Vox consumers are, you know, it's like, I'd forgotten that Uber driver from eight in the morning because so many other things have happened since then. And I should circle back and I should, you know, or maybe that person's always nice to me and maybe I should do something nice for them. And you notice also patterns where you're like, oh my God, I really keep not calling my grandmother even when I say I'm going to. And so those are, it's it's a really, really, I don't want to reduce it to just an instrumentalist kind of lens. I mean, depending on 
your faith and, and how you approach it, it can be a very powerful spiritual experience that can even lead you to tears um, or to laughter. But at the very least, it will give you those very practical uh, benefits. Yeah, and the one thing I'll say is that something Father Martin says in his book is that it's very, in obvious ways, um, adaptable if you don't believe uh, in God in this way, which I don't. And But I do, you know, something that's come up a little bit in this conversation is that the Jesuit practice, like some others, but in a slightly different way, I think is a practice of noticing. And it's a very beautiful, uh, I think, ritual to help. I like that you keep using the word discernment, right? It, it helps with discernment. It helps with noticing um, both where there was already a lot of good and where maybe you could have been better, which appeals to the side of me that likes to be more grateful and the side of me that likes to be constantly self-critical. <laughs> the premise of it is that the you know Ignatian spirituality, Jesuit spirituality is based on finding God in all things, in all cultures, in all people, in all things. And therefore, you know, again, even to, to, to come full circle, like we can find God in Twitter. We can find grace in Twitter. We can find it, you know, even in those places that where we find it most difficult. And perhaps we should pay particular attention to looking for it and seeking it and sharing it in those places where maybe perhaps it's hardest to find God or to find grace or, or, or beauty or truth or however, um, you know, one might, one might believe. And if you, if you believe that, if you don't reject the world, but view the world and creation as beautiful, then, um, for sure you will take better care of our planet and our environment. You will take better care of one another, irrespective of any identity. And you will, find plentiful opportunities to find the sacred because the sacred is not something that just resides in the tabernacle or in self-emptying and meditation, but also to be found in, um, you know, the conversation that you have with your wife or with your kid, uh, or with your colleagues, um, or with the, or the podcast that you listen to that day and the wonderful as as recline. There you go. I think that's a good place to come to a close. So let me ask you the question we always used to end the podcast, which is what are three books you've read that have influenced you that you'd recommend to the audience? Okay, I'm ready for this. And um, because we mentioned a couple of them, I'm going to sneak in a fourth one, which is an encyclical. So I think it doesn't violate the rule. So three books and an encyclical. Father James Martin's The Jesuit Guide to Almost uh, Everything and... Um, and uh, really, all of his books are, be- are, are, um, are beautifully written and, and very accessible and welcoming to the non-believer as well as the believer. Father Greg Boyle's Tattoos on the Heart, absolutely beautiful, beautiful book um, that is, is so uh, moving uh, and, and touching for me to read that I, I can't even read more than a chapter at a time because it's, 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 just, a, um, it's just a stunningly beautiful uh, set of narratives and stories and encounters right at the uh, intersection of life and death and wisdom and tragedy. And then the third book I want to recommend, we haven't, we haven't gone into this topic um, really that much, but uh, you've probably read it, Ezra, um, Andrew Solomon's Far From the Tree, um, which is uh, the book that best helped me to understand my own relationship with being blind um, and with having a disability. It's about 
parenting and it's about the relationship between parents and their children when those children are uh, far from born far from the tree. So when they have a horizontal identity um, that you know could be a disability um, or being on the autism spectrum or uh, the child of rape. Um, and it's a massive book with um, extremely well-researched, um, it's probably 10 years old now, chapters on each of these um, topics. And what's, what's, what's most powerful for me about it, um, and uh, uh, would love it sometime to talk to you more about this, Ezra, is that he really gets to the issue of identity versus illness, um, in, you know, in contexts that were, you know, where, um, we would, for example, he talks about, um, uh, gender identity, um, where it's quite fraught or, or sexual orientation where it's quite fraught to talk about it, um, as an illness, um, and where it's well understood as an identity, um, to other areas like being schizophrenic where, um, you know, there isn't a kind of, um, you know, a neurodiversity, uh, movement, obviously, but there's cases that he describes where I think we'd find it very difficult to celebrate that identity. Um, and I, and I, I, I want to just mention this book and, and, um, and recommend it to everyone because I think the question in America of how we can celebrate, um, how we can expand civil rights, um, whether that always has to be accompanied by identity formation, whether you can uh, accumulate, whether you can get to equity or increase the power share that a particular condition or set of choices or, or, or circumstances have, have afforded you in society without, um, needing to, uh, uh, necessarily create boundaries around a particular community is is a really fascinating thing for me because I'm proud of who I am. I don't think I'm lesser because I'm blind. Um, and I think blind people should be subject to, in, you know, equity, inclusion, and diversity practices. But if I could take a pill and become not blind and be able to see the Sistine Chapel or make eye contact or any of those things, I would do it in a second. And so that's a really troubling tension to have. Um, and the book is just extraordinary. And, um, and then the encyclical, uh, which is almost book length is Laudato Si, which I'll spell L-A-U-D-A-T-O, next word S-I. Um, it's the first encyclical fully written by Pope Francis and it's on, uh, human, uh, environmental and social ecology and, um, However progressive you are listening to this podcast, um, Francis is going to challenge you wherever you are on the spectrum. And it touches on everything from um, agricultural practices to urban planning to social media and uh, and everything in between. And it's just a phenomenal bit of writing. Um, very, very uh, accessible and readable, again, to people of all faiths or none. Sarah Sabib, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Ezra. Thank you to Lieutenant Governor Sarah Sabib. Thank you to all of you for being here. Uh, you can email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Thank you to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production.